Hi, I am Sophie Vaux, and this is the Rise and Play podcast. In this new series, I am focusing on portraits of women who have an outstanding career in games. How did they get into games? How did they reach their high position in career? What have been their personal and career choices to get to their level, and why? I want to bring more light to the wide range of career paths available for women in leadership positions in the industry, and to inspire you to dream big for your life and career too. Let's begin. So today I am very happy to have Annette Staloy with me. So a little more about Annette. Annette Staloy is the CMO at the Norwegian game studio Dirty Beat. The studio focuses on social multiplayer games and has grown organically to close to 140 million downloads for the games in the Fun Run series. Dirty Beat was founded almost 11 years ago and Annette has been part of the team for the last seven years. Annette is also the co-founder and chair of Women in Games Norway. So hi, Annette. Pleased to have you here. How are you? Hi, Sophie. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, we have talked about it for quite some time, so I'm happy we are finally doing it now. So let me begin with my first question. So what is the most exciting thing you are working on at the moment, whether it's personal or professional project? So professionally, right now, my main focus has been on supporting the game teams and kind of formalizing a bit more the what we call BISOPs. So bridging the game teams and the marketing, making sure that we work closely together so that me and my, my co-worker, who's also in marketing, can support both the game we have live and a game we have in soft launch. So we are gearing up towards a global launch, which is very exciting. So personally and also partly professionally, I started with some more education last fall. So I'm now taking an MBA in technology management, which is something that I've been wanting to do for quite some time because I was quite young when I finished my bachelor. I was 21 years old and then suddenly 20 years passed and I just applied. So here I am taking part-time next to my job. Congratulations for uh, starting the MBA. So I'm actually curious about it. What is an MBA in technology management? Can you explain more about it? And you mentioned it is actually quite some work, but I'm curious, how did you get to the decision of doing it now on the side of your also full-time job and probably busy life? So it's been 20 years since I completed my bachelor in marketing, management and internationalization. And I was very just focused to get my education and start working. And then during those 20 years, I've been working in tech somehow. And from time to time, I have had this urge of perhaps getting some more education. But then I've always gotten challenges work-wise. So just before I uh, found the job at Dirty Bit, I was considering taking more education. But then this new job came and Then I think it was last year, I had my 40th birthday and there was Corona still. And someone said that, oh, maybe some more of those programs are digital. So maybe it's easier to take something next to the job. So I started looking. I couldn't find anything nearby where I live in Bergen, Norway. But then I got this page from a university in the north of Norway. So it's called Mu Irana. It's, it's quite far. I, I have to take two flights to get there. But since this is a program for people who are already working, we are there two times every semester. And then there is a session of digital class. 
and then we work on assignments. So it's a master program. Originally, they go over two years, but since this is a part-time, it's over three years. And what I like the most about it is that, yes, it, it's a lot of work, but it's also it's very refreshing to get to know new people who work with completely different things and still realizing that we have so much in common. And it's also been good to learn that what I do know is useful and that I can also share that with my fellow students. And this program is built so that there are classes, but it's also a lot about sharing and learning about other industries as well. And yeah, we write assignments. That's kind of our exams. And then the third year will be to work on a master thesis. What are your expectations with this MBA in management? Is it more for yourself, for your own education, or do you have expectation on concrete actionables, whether type of work you can do, type of teams you can lead? What will you get out of it? I feel very fortunate to be able to do this just for myself because never have I felt that I've missed out on any opportunities for not having a master or an MBA. So this is purely for myself. I am very happy with the job that I have. So this is more learning and improving my strengths as a manager and getting some new inspiration. And I do meet a lot of my fellow students. They have different motivations. So some of them do this because they hope it will open up for new opportunities, perhaps even in new industries compared to what they're working on today. There are very many different reasons for why people do this I think and I feel very glad that I'm doing this purely for myself I don't feel like I have anything to prove this is for learning and uh, personal development I think it's good you mentioned like here there's no age to stop learning and just always be a student of life in a way yeah. no matter what phase or age or status you are in life I think it's a good principle absolutely so uh, let's get back then to uh, more of a uh, studio and your role as a CMO I spoke to several CMOs in my whole career and they were doing very different things so I would like to understand as well what is it for you to be a CMO and probably it has been evolving as a role throughout those seven years as the company has been growing Yeah, it has. And here are also many different company sizes and many different structures. So also the CMOs I meet, I feel very often have completely different roles and responsibilities than I have. So going back to when I joined the company seven years ago, we were eight people. The company was around four years old. And even when I applied to the job, I found a Norwegian job posting and it said something with market or administrative coordinator, <laughs> I think the title was for the job posting. And then I, I saw that and I saw that it was a games company and I didn't know that we had that in Norway. But then I read about the expectations for the role and what it involved. And then I felt like I can contribute here. And I found it very exciting that it was in games which I never even expected to be able to work with so then I, I started and you know when you're a team of eight people this is uh, probably familiar for you as well when you're a smaller team you take different types of responsibilities it's all hands-on and then we've been growing and nowadays we have a management team with four people So two years ago we hired COO to join our management team which also changed quite significantly in my role so that where I am today is more a focus 
on uh, marketing, business development and business operations, but also working very hands-on. So I do the keyword optimization in the store. Oh, wow. <laughs> in the, on the console, uh, I do the keyword research. I work with the ad operations. So I work with the bidding and the waterfalls there as well. But also my role involves working with strategy management since i've been part of kind of growing the company since we were eight people to around 20 i've been working a lot with the company culture how do we establish our employer brand and in general our brand as a company also since this role is very varied and the responsibilities are quite wide it's a lot about prioritization what's the most important right now because if we had like 10 people to cover only the ad operations, for example, <laughs> that's not where we are, right? So it's about finding the best ways of spending our time and focus. You mentioned two parts that are, I think, very important, but quite different. So one part is the people culture, I think also branding, like internal branding and external and the other business growth, marketing, and you even mentioned keywords, search optimization is to an extent UA, acquiring more uh, players. So how do you match the priorities between those two? Do you have a team to support you? What is your approach between those two dimensions of the business, as I said, are fundamental, but quite different and also requires different skills or people? Yeah, absolutely. I do have a team. It consists of myself and our digital marketing manager. And we work on supporting the game teams with our base ops, set up our business operation, which involves everything from paid UA, organic growth, working with optimization and uh, social media, community management. We work with ambassadors in our games. And for business development, I work with all the partnerships and identifying opportunities for the company. So we do have in the management team or overall for the company, we have a roadmap for the next two years where the four of us in the management team, we have our different lanes that we work on. So whatever priority aligns with the strategy that we have and what we are focusing on now. And of course, this is dynamic, so it might change. But if I feel uncertain what to prioritize, I can always discuss this and we'll figure it out. The good thing is that we hired the COO who has been doing a lot of work on structuring how we work, our processes, and also took over all the hiring. So typically when we've been hiring, recruiting people takes a lot of time and focus. So typically when we are hiring someone, that is almost the whole focus, right? So that means that other things will have to wait. So being able to focus more on the business side of thing and the growth, the marketing, I mentioned that we've been growing mostly organically. I think more than 90% of our installs come from organic growth. And we are also doing paid use requisition as well. And that's also my responsibility to manage that. So it is to work closely with the game teams and see what is the current focus. And then we figure our way to manage the time. We also have a team working with support closely with the players, which is very important, the closest to the to the <laughs> players with very important feedback. They pay attention to reviews uh, that players write. So yeah, absolutely, there is a team supporting. We work very close in general, everyone in the company, supporting each other in the best ways we can. 
And so at this phase where you have a game running really well, mature and a game coming soon, what is your ambition three to five years for the company? And maybe you can even name references of companies like who do you want to be in the ecosystem ambitions for Dirty Bit Studio? And yeah, how big do you want to grow? How big do you want to become? Or is this even on your roadmap? How do you position yourself as a studio in the whole ecosystem? And who do you want to become? Oh, so many studios we admire and take inspiration from. In terms of size, we don't aim to be a massive team. Happy to have a few more employees and have partners in areas where that makes the most sense. We do take a lot of inspiration from areas like Helsinki, where there are hubs or Finland in general, there are several hubs with game developers. And in the game industry, everybody is very open and willing to share. So we have been learning a lot from others as well. In Norway, the games industry is quite small, yet we do involve ourselves in initiatives to make it grow and get more focus on the potential in the games industry in Norway. We do plan to be able to release more games. I think we, we're not alone in that, shipping games. We do work with uh, new projects in R&D. And as you know, most games, they don't get to the point where you globally launch them. But there are so many learnings to pick up from each and every project. So we do plan to launch new games. We work with uh, Fun Run, the series that we've had big success with. And we keep updating and maintaining FunRun 3 that we launched in 2016. Last week, it was actually featured in the US by Apple. So we do keep updating the game, improving, learning from our players. And then it's the new game, FunRun 4, that is in soft launch. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of those games that we have in our R&D pool to reach the market as well. So you talk about the fun run series are you working on creating other ips yeah absolutely so that's also in the plan that we want to have more brands more ips fun run was the second game we made our first success was the second title and then fun run 2 was released in 2014 and then we had fun run 3 in 2016 and what we see now is if you look at the topless as well there are many games that have been on the market for a long time so to some degree it seems like it's almost easier to maintain those games that have seen success than to succeed with new games it's very tough in the top list right now many different types of games you know it's not always easy to understand why a game is in that category or what people look for in the different type of categories our game for example is a multiplayer racing game but it's not racing with cars it's more racing with animals running towards the finish line it is a racing game it's a social game that you can play with friends it's kind of filled with action and excitement so we feel like our game is kind of in between different type of categories it's wonderful to just see many players finding our game we see so many stories where people have moments that they remember they grew up with the game or they have played it in school or played it with their co-workers during lunch every day for a year. And that's also in the vision of the company to let people create memorable moments. Mm -hmm. And we are very glad to see people share those moments. 
one of your guests talk about players meeting in clans and in games and then getting to know each other in real life, some getting married even. Yeah. And we've seen those examples as well. Like people have had kids and send us photos of the, the babies. And so having a social game can create quite strong relations among people. And that's a very powerful anecdote and result to remind ourselves why we're working on games and what is the value we create because it's uh, moments, experiences or memories in real life for many people. Absolutely. And, and also when the previous years with lockdowns and isolation, at least to me, it gave even more meaning to what we do because people use games to connect and keep in touch with friends. And we have seen in the past many videos of people playing outside in big groups, but also now with people playing from home, but keeping in touch and playing with friends has been very nice. And we've been reading Reddit posts of stories of how people connect and bond over playing together. And you mentioned the challenge of maintaining successful game because the market is evolving over time and there are Many complex factors that we don't always understand, timing, the type of game that made a success. And when you find it, you have to keep growing it versus uh, future new successes. It is really hard to make a new success. And that's the challenge of many companies that created a big IP and creating the next hit. So for this audience that has been growing around Fun Run series, what is the audience that you have managed to really capture? And I understand it has a special positioning on the market. So it's never a, a typical runner or racing game. It has a social aspect. Who's your audience of this franchise? Our main market has been the US for all the fun run games and followed by Middle East. Oh, yeah. So I think in Israel, we've counted more than 4.5 million installs. And I think the, wow. the population is about 9 million. So <laughs> <laughs> half of Israel played. So yeah, we've, we've seen the game spread through social media. So people inviting friends, talking about the game. Social media has been a very big part of mm -hmm. that. Especially in the beginning when the game, we had the hashtag fun run and it trended worldwide on Twitter. So we see every now and then there is people tweeting or posting something about, remember at the university when we used to play. And sometimes these tweets almost go viral again. And then people start remembering and then they go to the store and search and find new versions of the game. So main audience, US men, women between 21, 22-year-old mm -hmm. is the main audience. We did this survey with 12 traits last summer, awesome. uh, which we learned a lot about. The people who yeah, want to either compete or collaborate, play with a group of friends in a clan, perhaps. But it's the exciting thing when you race first to the finish line and you have the power-ups and There was inspiration taken from Mario Kart and the cartoon series uh, Happy Tree Friends when the game was made. So, yeah, it's people who yeah, like fun, humor, and we see that as well when we communicate with players in social media. It's very nice to be able to be close to the audience and see how they react. Great, great to hear. Having audience and attention is the most difficult thing and uh, having players switching from a game to another, very difficult. So it's very precious and valuable. This huge audience you have been managing to uh, collect over, over the past years with the franchise. 
really hard to replicate. Let's switch gears a little bit on a more leadership topic. And here I wanted to ask personal questions of what is your leadership mindset? Because you have a lot of things to follow. You're also involved in a Women in Game Norway organization, and it's amazing that you kick it off. I see it's you know emerging in uh, several countries, so probably a lot of work here. What's your mindset, uh, your philosophy on organizing all of that personal, professional, and side projects in your daily life? I have always been a person who wants to get involved with everything that I find interesting. <laughs> so I have learned to be able to say no more. And at least for the projects that I take on, I want to do that because it gives me something. It, it gives me inspiration or it feels meaningful. For example, the Women in Games Norway, it, it gives a lot of meaning. And in Norway, in 2019, we had like 12.5% women in the industry. And then it increased to 20 in 2020. And we haven't numbers yet from last year. But I strongly believe that I can be part of influencing an increase in those numbers. And that's something that I also see in the company. And we have today 50-50 in the leadership group. Oh, that's amazing. 50% women. And in the company overall, we have more than 40% women. I want that to be of inspiration for other studios as well because I know that many studios struggle with this and it doesn't come for free you have to focus actively on recruiting on working on the work environment it is voluntarily like we all have jobs so we have to also focus on what can we do that has the most meaning mm -hmm. uh, most impact and then in general for managing my time it, it is about prioritization I think I've developed a more relaxed mindset about things and trying not to stress about what I don't need to stress about. I see this with some of my fellow students. They always feel uh, bad about watching TV if they should have been studying or something like that. But I think it's possible to do all of it. And you have to just set your expectations and figuring out what's good enough because, you know, everything does not have to be perfect. I, I try to figure out What can I do and still be happy and still be able to watch TV series when I want to? Because I, I do, even though I have all these projects. And at work, we really focus on life-work balance. And not only am I not expected to work overtime, I am actually expected not to work <laughs> overtime. So my um, COO, they will follow up if someone works more than we should because we should prioritize our time and effort rather than working more, because we could always do more, right? I also have family. I have kids, boys that are eight and 12. So yeah, it's about finding what gives you meaning, energy. Yeah. So among all of uh, those things you mentioned, then what are your priorities, like top three priorities and in which order? Family first, and then my uh, job And then the side projects after that, studies as well. My studies are sort of a project for me because it has an end date. Yeah, life changes and there are different types of priorities, but finding the balance where I'm happy yeah. is important. And I think also an important thing as well is 
having clarity on your priorities. That's why I was asking you and you answered immediately. They seem very clear and that helps you make a decision every day of how you should uh, spend your time, your focus, your attention and energy because those are scarce and limited for each individual. Yeah, absolutely. And also being in a place where I have support from management team, for example, that family is the most important. Mm -hmm. And my CEO usually say if there is something going on, he says, like, do what you have to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it also helps remind me that I have the trust to kind of take the right decisions and prioritize the way I should. And important, as you mentioned, also to have a support of the environment you're working in, the culture as well, that if a family is your priority, then you never have to compromise with priorities of the business, for example, at the work and people will respect that. And also being in a leadership position, we are all important role models for everyone else, right? Yes. So it is important to show that it's completely possible to have a family and career and personal projects at the same time. Totally. I'm happy to hear that and I'm happy that you're an example of this. <laughs> Security as well, because mm -hmm. sometimes I haven't felt like maybe I didn't deserve the opportunities. I felt insecure about myself. But despite that being a bit scared, sometimes I have just jumped on and trying to figure out how to learn. That's actually quite uncommon to start that young first to work. And <laughs> I can imagine at 17 years old when all the other kids would probably focus more on ha just having fun, you know, going on with their life, dreaming, not taking responsibility. You actually did the opposite. So let's go back to your teenager self. And I'm curious what has influenced you in your environment to be drawn to that kind of position so young? I grew up with a quite uh, young mother and never got to complete any education. And in my family, people had gotten kids quite young. So I was curious. I remember talking with my granddad who wanted me to become a doctor because that was the kind of the most proud <laughs> I could ever make someone. I think that was very important to become a doctor. But I wasn't comfortable with courses. I didn't like having math, physics, and chemistry. So then I changed, okay, let me do something completely else. I changed all the courses to finance and economy. You know, this was end of the 90s. And we didn't have all these conversations about entrepreneurs and starting companies and startups. That was still too early for that, at least in my circles. I had always had a computer before the other kids in my class. And we played a lot of games. And somehow I managed to apply to be a programmer. And one day there was a business school in town, this open day for potential new students. So I went there just to get day off from school, really. But then there was this uh, entrepreneur there. And that was a Norwegian guy who kind of quit his job and followed his dream to build this universe around this pirate, actually, who is quite known in Norway. And my brother grew up watching this pirate on TV. And I was so inspired by this guy who told the story of how he built his business and all the mistakes he made, for example, not trademarking the universe that he built. So then I decided that I would not go to the programming school after all and go to the business school. It was very random that I saw the invitation. So it always feels like something that happened by chance. Uh, and then it has quite an impact on how your life continues from there on. 
What you describe is quite an uh, intuitive thinking, right? How you took opportunities presented to you. I know we talk a lot about what is luck and what is created for yourself in business life success. Of course, there were things that happened randomly, the encounters you had, but you still made the decision to make the change after all and very intuitively and trusting a bit the path that, okay, you will discover and so on. I can relate to that because also that's how I made quite some key decisions in my life and I didn't know back then the consequences of it, but it all turned all right, right? I think you probably see that as well. And you can always look back and ask yourself, what if, what if, but in the end, It went for the best for the choices you made. So very like kind of an intuitive choice already early on. Yes, there's luck in the events that happen to you, but how you respond to these lucky events is all on you. And I think uh, this is something for sure to own for yourself in these choices you made. Yeah, absolutely. And that's often when I think in retrospect, it wasn't just luck. I worked hard for that and took the chances. And of course, some situations where I felt like I have been given a position that I was not fully qualified for, where I started doubting myself. And I have a good friend who was in the same spot, sort of similar story, getting in uh, leadership positions and uh, feeling sometimes insecure. And do I really deserve this position? Can I handle it? For many years, we talked about this and we supported each other and helped each other find the security when we were having doubts. And then one day she called me and said, do you know that there is a thing called imposter syndrome? And I had never heard about it. I googled it and I was so surprised that this never came up before. Because the imposter syndrome is that feeling of not being qualified and that you have tricked people into believing that you have talent, which you probably don't have, and you feel very big doubt in your own abilities. And it was such an eye-opener for me that this was actually a, a thing, that it wasn't just me and my friend who were having these feelings, because we felt like people were giving us so much praise, oh, you're doing such a great job, and So this uh, realization of this being something that was quite common, but not being so much talked about. I think today this has been more uh, discussed. People have been open about it. And also seeing leaders talking openly uh, about this. I think there was the founder of uh, Confluence, Atlassian, also have a TED talk about this, which was great to watch. So then coming to that point where, okay, so... Let's now try better to own our own path and realizing that we didn't get here only by chance. We did work hard for this and people do believe in us and we need to believe more in ourselves as well. Then some years went by and I started working in this job that I have now at Dirty Bit. The company is doing very successful and we have also worked a lot on informing and teaching the Norwegian other industries and politicians about the games industry and the potential that there is in this industry. And I was at an event where the Minister of Culture launched the first ever strategy for games by the Norwegian government. It's never happened before. And in this document, there were quotes that I had given to the minister. And I called my friend and I was feeling excited about this. And she said, okay, so I need to ask you something. Do you think now that you might be done with your <laughs> imposter syndrome? Look at what you have achieved. Thought about it a bit. And I think, yeah, I think so. I haven't thought about this for a while. And of course, these insecurities come and go. But 
I think it's very important to talk about this also for younger people who might be pursuing a career that you will feel insecure and it's natural and you are not actually alone in this. I see that in quite many very strong leaders to have a hard time accepting a compliment or what you have done, you have achieved and uh, typical behavior, I've done this as well and it's related to imposter syndrome. It's like rejecting the compliment, you know, it's like, oh, it was nothing or I was lucky or, yeah. or well, it's, you know, it's a bit of a stigma, like accepting the compliment or accepting something big that we have achieved. We feel almost bad about it and I believe a lot in creating habits, right? So even if deep inside you don't believe that you deserve it, then when you start to force yourself to accept it and just say, thank you, it's already a gift for yourself and a gift to the person giving the compliment, the praiser. And so by saying thank you, over time, you start to really believe that you deserve it. And I have tried that practice now for several years and I can say it has changed also my belief to that. So it could be small habits like that, you know, changing the attitude when those moments of appreciation come to you and to yourself as well. Also having that habits maybe even helps you giving praise or making us aware of giving praise. And mm-hmm. and I think that's very important as well. So yeah, I've also tried to not kind of reject it, but to take it. And very often the praise you get for doing something you have done not only alone, but together with a group or with your coworkers mm-hmm. and try to share the praise and kind of include people in that and praise each other. It might be cultural as well. I don't know, but learning to accept praise is a good thing. Yeah. It sounds to me as well, you have been doing your DIY leadership growth, you know, into your life and career and so on. And it's another path and, you know, by the books, uh, sitting in, you know, in school and learning like the theory and practice. So what has helped you to grow over, you know, your career and still today in your leadership skills? And if one key learning you have learned and maybe uh, through a, a very hard mistake through your leadership journey, what was it? There was one situation where I changed my job because uh, something happened in the company while I was on maternity leave. And then there was a lot of insecurity. So I was kind of charmed by a new company to join. And I didn't fully knew about the culture, the environment. And the insecurity in the current job made me jump onto the new opportunity. And I realized that it was a mistake and I didn't like it at the new place. And I have usually always loved the places that I've worked, but there was something with this new place that I didn't uh, enjoy. I wasn't there for a very long time, but then I realized that I should have kind of kept calm and sticked with the older company. So that was a learning. And I think that's the kind of the time where I really felt like I wasn't qualified and this was a consulting business. So I had to take on some consulting missions that I I didn't have the knowledge. It was not only about working with the client, it was all about having knowledge about tax setup, for example. So that's one time where I really understood that here I am not really qualified at all. And instead of then seeking advice, I tried to fix it myself and learn and yeah, Thanks for sharing about how you handle your current situation and priorities of life with your current situation as a CMO. I end it always with three rapid fire questions. So my first question is, what are you dreaming of for yourself next? I am dreaming of continuing to find and be in the balance of 
work, family, projects, having spare time. Yeah, thriving. And my second question, what keeps you busy at night? Try to not forget important things. There is a lot going on. I'm quite dependent on having good notes and a calendar. So yeah, if I feel like I'm forgetting important things, that stresses me out a bit. And uh, last question, what is your personal motto in life? I have learned from my life, my career, that a lot of the things that happen are based on luck and, of course, about skills and working hard. But I like to talk about optimizing for luck because we can do certain things to accelerate luck or increase the chances of luck to happen. I like that one. I never thought about it this way, but it's also a very humble statement. Well, thanks, Annette, for the conversation today. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Likewise. Looking forward to meeting in person. Again. Next occasion. Yeah. yeah. Ah, I'm planning to go to uh, Norway this summer. So. Oh, <laughs> then yes, maybe we will meet then. Thank you very much and uh, take care. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this new episode of Raise and Plague podcast. If you enjoyed the content and want to support what we're doing, rate and review the podcast, spread the word about it. If you'd like to contribute to the change too, reach out to me on LinkedIn for a collaboration. You'll find all the rest of the content on riseandplay.io, including my free masterclass on conscious leadership, how to hire a team with a vision, or how to lead and build a team for the long-term game. Until the next time, 